We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. For over 45 years, Patagonia has committed to taking responsibility for their impact on the environment by pioneering sustainable practices and inspiring other businesses to do the same. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. Patagonia, in business to save our home planet. Join us. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Kuat Racks, Because You Love Your Bike, and Kicking Horse Coffee. Wake up and kick ass. Darren and I hiked up the steep, talused flank of Mount Humphreys. Within a few hours, we reached the snow-covered summit, the highest point in Arizona, at 12,600 feet. The view was clear that day. We could see almost every place we'd hiked together in the southwest over the past two years. To the east lay Buckskin Gulch, Mount Taylor to the southwest, Escalani Route in Grand Canyon, and the Verde Valley to the south. The previous week, we had camped there, watching the mysterious ascent and descent of green-striped Aurora Borealis rays. I had never seen them before, their electric curtains rising and falling in the theater of night. I felt that something important was happening. Seeing the northern lights from Arizona is rare. I just didn't know what that something was. I looked like some mountain man's girlfriend, and sometimes that's all I felt like. My blonde ponytail braided against the wind, my hair flying like dandelion fluff around my face, my sunburned nose. It was easy to hide in Darren's shadow, to let the world knock on his door first. We met when I was 22 and he was 24. We both worked as ecology teachers at an outdoor school for sixth graders. We lived in ratty trailers deep in the redwood forest of coastal California. I loved his semi-feral look. He had big, starry green eyes and a crazy thicket of curly brown hair. And he wore the same pair of faded black climbing pants every day. I was also attracted to his easy giggle and his staunch environmentalism. Before, I had spent summers as a camp counselor and a state park docent, but Darren introduced me to a new life immersed in the outdoors. We spent weeks at a time living out of our tent, as we climbed, backpacked, and explored the wilds of the western U.S. Now, I was about to take my next step. I had just completed an emergency medical technician class, and later that summer, I would go to Alaska for five weeks to be trained as a wilderness guide. This hike, up Mount Humphreys, would be my last trip with Darren before I ventured north on my own. On the summit, we spotted several other hikers, including one man talking into a radio. I noticed him and wondered why a person would struggle all the way up there, only to talk to someone far away. These were the days before cell phones. We continued on and peered into Humphrey's crater. Below, 
In the basin's shaded snow and rock expanse, I saw people tugging at someone on the ground. Giant inner tubes lay like huge black donuts around them. I realized someone was hurt, but made no move toward them. I didn't want to. But Darren nodded at me, and we glissaded down the slushy snow to the group. They all appeared to be in their mid to late teens, and they all had crew cuts. The tallest of them told us, in a southern accent, that they worked at a Baptist summer camp, and they were sledding on their day off. Their buddy Mark had crashed into the rocks. They were trying to get him off the snow. My stomach churned. Mark had blue lips and blood curled through his sand-colored hair, he was conscious, but his blue eyes looked dull and sleepy. His body was limp. His clothes were soaked through from the wet snow. The tall guy approached Darren and introduced himself as Bert. I was mute. Maybe they can take care of him, I thought. I considered turning around and hoofing it down the mountain. I had just finished my EMT course. I wasn't sure I was good enough at emergency medicine to take on such responsibility. Darren interrupted my thoughts. Andrea, you're the EMT here. You have to take care of this. It was a command. It was also a tacit endorsement of my ability. I was used to Darren pushing me. All those places we had hiked together... In Buckskin Gulch, he had urged me through a long slot canyon of chest-deep, sludgy water as dead ravens floated past. Darren hadn't minded. It only reached his waist. One blistering hot afternoon in the Grand Canyon, Darren persuaded me to traverse a riverside cliff to the next beach. He didn't have any trouble. I slipped into the icy river. And on Mount Taylor, he convinced me to hike across snowfields without an ice axe. I cracked my knees against rocks after sliding down an ice field, and not for the first time, I ended up bloodied, sobbing, and cursing him. But this time, he was right. The crew cuts swarmed around their buddy, drawling protectively, but not doing much else. Darren looked at me expectantly. I felt something move inside me. I turned to face the first task to convince a dozen teenage boys to remove all of Mark's sopping wet clothing and begin warming him with their own bodies. Okay, you guys, my voice cracked. I pulled my jacket around me for courage as much as warmth as I called instructions over the roar of the wind. Soon, Mark was stripped and in dry clothes, his friends huddled, rewarming him. He wasn't bleeding much, but when I touched his neck and spine, he winced, trying not to cry out. Possible head injury, possible neck injury, blue lips. We've got to get him out of here, I thought. It was getting dark and cold. Then I remembered the guy with the radio. Maybe he could help. I asked Darren if he would go look for him, and he jogged off up the mountain. When they returned, the man with the radio already had the sheriff on the line. The dispatcher told us the rescue crew should be there in three or four hours. My stomach clenched. I held my breath. I was pretty sure Mark needed to get out of there sooner, but what were the consequences if I called for a helicopter and he didn't need it? 
I went with my gut and said, we needed an air evac. Okay, if you really think you need one, I'll call a helicopter. Stand by for further information, Mount Humphreys. That was me, Mount Humphreys. I hoped I was doing the right thing. The helicopter medic came on the radio. I told him Mark's condition. Pulse 120, respiration 15, possible head injury, possible spine injury, patient is semi-alert and oriented, pupils are reactive to light, slight cyanosis around mouth, spine painful to touch, bleeding from head, treating for shock and trying to keep him immobile. Over, I said, trying not to forget what I'd learned in my EMT class. I don't know who you are, Mount Humphreys, he said, but you're doing a great job. I smiled a little, relieved. We battened down everything, except some red rain pants, which became the windsock. Then we all lay prone on the gravel and waited. As the helicopter landed, I saw a man in the doorway beckoning me. He shook my hand, brought out a gurney, and we belted Mark into it. We carried him to the helicopter and secured him inside. Then it lifted off. We all stood for a moment, stunned. I had stupidly assumed Darren and I would ride in the helicopter, too. With no other option, we started hiking. The crew cuts barreled straight downhill, cutting switchbacks to get down to the hospital quickly. Darren and I didn't have headlamps, so we took the trail to be more sure of our footing in the darkness. I trotted wordlessly, listening to the percussion of my breath. Soon, I watched the boulders and aspen trees duplicate every time my feet hit the ground. We had been at high elevation all day. I had been worrying and problem-solving, trying to be brave and smart. Now, dehydration and altitude sickness set in, and my body started to fail. When we reached Darren's car, I had double vision. I hunched over and vomited. Back at his house, My head hurt so badly that I couldn't drink or eat anything, so I lay alone in the dark with a wet towel over my eyes, replaying in my mind what had happened on the mountain, wondering what was happening to me. I had become another victim of the accident, the primary thing I learned not to do in my basic first aid class. I felt stupid and scared. How long would the effects of dehydration and altitude sickness last? Would I be able to go on my Alaska trip? I was supposed to leave in a couple days. Darren ducked his head into the dark room a few times to check on me, but I was alone with my fear until he came to bed hours later. I knew he would make sure I was all right, but I also knew he couldn't take care of me in the way I deeply longed for. I wanted him to cure my lack of confidence, heal my feelings of inadequacy, Erase my old fears and scars. But I was beginning to understand that only I could do those things for myself. I needed to take responsibility for my own life, my own decisions. I awoke the next morning feeling severely hungover, headachy and brain-addled, but with normal vision. While Darren slept, I crept out of bed and drove to the hospital in Flagstaff. 
I said hello to Mark, who smiled from his bed, looking embarrassed. He had broken three ribs and his head gash had needed stitches, but he'd be released from the hospital the next day. We chatted a little, and he thanked me for helping him. I left the hospital to go pack for my Alaska trip, feeling a little better, perhaps because seeing Mark confirmed that the rescue had been a success. But the thought of leaving for Alaska was almost as painful as the previous night's headache. Darren and I had been together in so many unusual and challenging situations, I sometimes felt like I was an appendage of his. Now we would have no contact for five weeks. I would have to cleave myself from him. I had told him that after the expedition I would move in with him in Flagstaff, but I sensed I needed my own plan, something besides waitressing at a groovy cafe and being his girlfriend. And after what I'd managed on Mount Humphreys, I thought I could figure it out. The beginnings of a plan had sparked in my mind like those unexpected northern lights. I arrived in Alaska days later, feeling raw. But as I learned to lead, through tundra and forest, across bodies of water, over glaciers and up mountains, those sparks of a plan began to ignite. One night, as I lay alone on a pebbled beach, gazing at the sky from my cozy sleeping bag, I felt a familiar sense of oneness with all those stars. It happened every time I slept outside. I telescoped between feeling minute and alone and feeling utterly connected to all of it. I wanted to share those feelings of wonder and power. I wanted to introduce other women to the backcountry without the fear and self-doubt I'd endured while traveling through the wilderness before. When I returned from Alaska, things ended badly with Darren. I went back to my hometown in California, heartbroken and alone. Except for my women's adventure travel company idea, I still had that. Before a year had passed, I was guiding, along with my co-founders, Claire and Angie. Our first trip was in August along the Eel River in Northern California. We taught 10 women how to pack their gear and heft their packs. On the trail, we hiked slow and steady and rested when we needed it. And when we arrived at the river, we stripped naked and gleefully jumped into the cold green water. That first night, we all slept out under the stars, each of us forming the spoke of a wheel. Two shooting stars flashed across the sky and everyone gasped in awe. Back when Darren and I had watched the northern lights in the Verde Valley, I thought they might be a sign that we were meant to be together, that magic happened when we were a couple. But now I see that the important thing about the Northern Lights was that they marked the point where I started to stake a claim on my own life, to knock on my own damn door. That important thing was about stepping out into the world, not staying behind. I'm Andrea Ross, and this is my short.
Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia, who just introduced Workwear, a new line of clothing made from hemp canvas and built for toughness and durability. Learn more at patagonia.com workwear. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, a motley crew of dreamers and schemers determined to bring you sharp design, quality products, and awesome customer service. Check out their lineup of good-looking, easy-to-use roof racks and hitch racks at kuatracks.com. And support comes from Vossen Brewing, who just celebrated the grand opening of their Richmond, Virginia taproom. That's right, they're pouring beer, so if you're in the area, go check them out. Or follow them on social media at Vossen Brewing. You, our audience, also keep us thriving. To celebrate our 10th birthday, we're offering a download of the Dirtbag Diaries theme song ringtone to anyone who donates to the show. To pledge your support, go to dirtbagdiaries.com and click on the button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you to everyone who has contributed already. A huge thank you to Andrea for sharing her story. Andrea ran her women's guiding service for a few years. She now lives in California and works as an English professor. You can find the link to her blog on our website. Easy Day from Jason Tyler Burton. Thanks, Jason, as always. This episode was mixed and edited by Jacob Bain and produced by Jen Altschul and Becca Call. I'm Fitz Call, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.